Good morning, everyone. Um, my name's Nita. Uh, I'm part of Epping Forest Community Church, and I'm going to speak to you today about the Book of Ruth. Um, and I am, I am hoping that everyone does know the story, because we don't really have time to read it this morning. But if you haven't, don't worry. Um, you'll pick it up as we go along, and you can read it afterwards if you want to. It's a great book. It's very moving. It's a bit unpredictable, but it's got a great punchline at the end. Um, and the series we're in at the moment is called Faith in Action. We've already looked at Hebrews 11 to see what the characteristics of faith are. Uh, we've also heard about Noah and Abraham, who demonstrated those characteristics. Now, the thing I found about the book of Ruth is that it isn't really crammed full of people who are actively demonstrating their faith in the different ways that we saw in Hebrews 11. And actually, Ruth doesn't even appear in Hebrews 11, or not by name anyway. Um, but the main characters in Ruth are just ordinary people living ordinary lives and responding to external circumstances in different ways, a bit like us, really. Um, however, there is faith at work in this story, and we're going to see if we can find it. So... Ruth's claim to biblical fame, I'm going to go quite quickly through history and things, so don't worry because I want to get to the important bit, um, is that she ends up being the great-grandmother of King David. Now, obviously, she wouldn't have known that at the time. That was left to the writer of Ruth to work it out. Uh, and the thing about being an ancestor of David is that you're also an ancestor of Jesus. But the thing that's a bit wrong about Ruth being an ancestor of David and Jesus is that she came from a country called Moab, not Israel. So therefore, she wasn't a Jew. She couldn't have even become a Jew, even if she'd wanted to, um, because God had previously made a judgment against all Moabites based on their bad behavior in the past. So they were not the flavor of the month or of the year or even of the generation. In fact, for 10 generations, no Moabite was to be welcomed as a citizen of Israel. And at this stage in the Bible, we're in about generation three or four. So that definitely excluded Ruth. But for some reason, God overlooked this, this decree against the Moabites and included Ruth as a part of his plan to bring salvation to the nations. And hopefully the some reason will become clear as we go on. So before we start walking through Ruth, I've written down a couple of things that I think will help us to look at the story from the viewpoint of faith. So it's a couple of questions, and they're a bit like reading glasses, actually. Um, they might help us see things in sharper focus. So the first one is, is God's presence and nature more important to this person that we're looking at than anything else? And the second is, do we see true godliness in this person's character? Okay, so keep those glasses in your hand, and I'll tell you when the right time is to put them on, if I remember. Okay, so back to Ruth. Um, so quick bit about the history. Um, the events in Ruth take place about 150 years after the escape from Egypt. And the Israelites have done the whole wandering around the desert for 40 years thing. They've conquered this beautiful, fertile land under Joshua's command. They followed some of God's instructions about dealing with the habitants. And there's so much to say about that, but this is not the time. Um, they've settled into their tribal territory, so every tribe had their own bit of land that they could live in, and they're getting on with the business of life. So, about, about 80 to 100 years after that, we get to Ruth. And historically, we're in Judges, which is the book before Ruth, and that's rather a dark time in Israel's history. 
From start to finish, the book of Judges describes these cycles, okay? People disobeying God, then God brings judgment on them, either by enemy attack or natural disasters or disease. Eventually, the Israelites would cry out to God in distress because of their oppression, and then God would deliver them. And these cycles went on and on, year after year, decade after decade, same old, same old. And I assume that the events in Ruth must have happened during one of the bits, the judgment bits, because there was a famine in the land. So that's the setting. Now let's get to the characters. So first, I want to talk about Naomi. She was a Jewish woman who's married to a guy called Elimelech. And along came two sons, and sons are very useful, sorry girls, but that's how it was. If you were a woman living in those times, the main options for you in your life were marriage, uh, being a concubine, which was a sort of lower-class wife, um, slavery or prostitution. So if you were lucky enough to get married to a good man and have sons, your future would be provided for, your sons would look after you in your old age. Daughters, on the other hand, would marry, be part of someone else's family and look after someone else's mum. So, Naomi is very happy with her lovely husband and her two sons. And they live amongst friends and relatives in the tribal territory of Judah, in a town that we all know called Bethlehem. And life was sweet. Naomi probably felt very blessed by God in her family and her community, and she looked forward to a good future, we think. And then along came a famine. Now, we don't get to hear the reasoning of Naomi and her husband... But clearly, at this point, they decided that the best thing for them was to leave Bethlehem and go to Moab, which was like a, quite a vast country, a long way away on the other side of the Dead Sea from them. Um, and Moab, as a country, had rather a tempestuous on-off relationship with Israel, to say the least. <laughs> um, they were alternately at war or at peace. Um, right now, there was peace. So, obviously, it made sense to to go there. And not everyone in Bethlehem would have decided to move to where there was food. Some people stayed. Maybe they had a lot of food stored up. Maybe they believed the famine wouldn't last very long. But for whatever reason, Naomi and her husband and her sons went to Moab, rightly or wrongly. I don't know. And they stayed in Moab long enough for the sons to grow up and get married to Moabite women, of course. So far, so good. But then all the guys die. First Naomi's husband and then her sons. It doesn't say how or why, but they all died, leaving Naomi as a widow far away from home with two widowed Moabite daughters-in-law. Life is not sweet for Naomi. Um, if she'd sang that song we sang this morning that ends with the line, um, you do all things well, just look at our lives, I don't think Naomi would have wanted to sing that. <laughs> I think she would have found that really hard. So at this point, I want to ask this question. What does Naomi know about the God of Israel, Yahweh? Well, as a Hebrew woman brought up in the tribe of Judah, she'll have been well familiar with Israel's history. She'll have known about creation and the flood and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the stuff about Egypt and the miracles and the journeys and the battles and Joshua and all of it, right up until like the present time. And the Hebrews were a people who told and retold their history again and again through the generations, writing it down, repeating it to friends, family, neighbours, children, grandchildren. They just, that was part of their culture, like God put it in there. 
And Naomi would have memorized whole portions of scripture and been very aware of God's commands, his promises and blessings, rewards for obedience, consequences for disobedience. So she, she knew a lot. She knew a lot about God. But going back to the glasses, um, look at how, looking at how Naomi reacts in this story, I think it's quite likely that she has made a connection between what's happened to her in her own life and what that says to her about God's goodness. And if you've read the story, you'll kind of know what I'm talking about. And we'll come back to it in a minute. Um, so this is how the story goes after all the men have died. And I think, Kelly, this is your bit now, if that's okay, just to save my voice. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons? Who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband, even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Oprah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Okay. So... Let's introduce the next character, which is Ruth. And then this is how it goes after that. I think Rob's got this bit. Luke said, Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Yeah, there's a reason I didn't want to read that bit, because it's so moving. Um, and you see something of Ruth's heart in that, how she dedicates herself to a mother-in-law. Sorry. <laughs> so, um, here you have it. Um, her sister-in-law, Oprah, goes back, back to her people, but Ruth says, no, I'm staying with you. And we begin to see something really beautiful here, I think. So what do we think Ruth knew about the God of Israel? Well, probably not that much. The only gods Ruth knew were unpredictable. Moabite gods were just like all the other gods in the surrounding nations. They needed to be pleased and appeased. You never knew what they would do next or whether they were in a good mood or not. Um, and uh, history tell, or some history books tell us that the chief Moabite protector god was said to be destructive, angry, and demanding. 
He was also called the fish god, so I find that a little bit difficult to believe, but anyway. (laughs) Um, But there are records in the Bible of child sacrifice and sexual promiscuity as part of Moabite worship. So that was the kind of religious culture that Ruth probably grew up in. However, she did know the name of the God of Israel, Yahweh. She just uses it in verse 17 where she says, May the Lord God deal with me. That, That name, that is Yahweh. She knew that name. She knew God's name, but she didn't yet know who he was. Perhaps, though, even by just acknowledging that name, she was beginning her own faith faith journey. So now I want to put the glasses on again to view the story through the lens of recognizing true godliness in a person's character. So thinking about Ruth, she'd married into a foreign family, foreign to her, that worshipped the God of Israel, Yahweh by name. She probably hadn't been part of the family for that long, given that the husbands died and there weren't any children. I'm just making that assumption, okay? But maybe in that short time, she recognised something of holiness or godliness in that family, in their daily lives, in their rituals, in their prayers and testimony to God, in the stories they told of their family back in Bethlehem. She must have seen and heard something she liked. If she just relied on her own experiences of what gods were like, or even looked at the things that had just happened in this family, she would have walked away. After all, what kind of god sends a famine to people he supposedly loves, forcing them to move away from their country? Or what kind of god allows a woman to lose first her husband and then her two sons, and therefore her future security and protection? What kind of god does that? Those, those were the visible and undeniable acts of God that she was witness to. And really, if that's all there was to it, he was no different from the Moabite gods. But in spite of those external events, Ruth must have picked up something of the nature and character of the God of Israel in her mother-in-law. She must have done. For her to leave all that was familiar behind and go to the place where that God was in charge, something of that must have had a grip on her. Enough of a grip for her to turn away from everything she knew, her culture, society, religion, her parents, her sister-in-law, the chance to remarry one of her own countrymen and have her own family, maybe. All of that she gave up because she saw something, I believe, of true godliness in Naomi, despite Naomi's disappointment with life. She made a decision to stick with her to make a brave move to a new country with a middle-aged woman who was poor and could give her no hope of a future. I think she saw something, and I think there was a little bit of faith in action in Ruth here. So I just want to ask a question. What do you think Ruth's faith in action looks like? I think she had a little bit of faith, but what do you think it looks like? Does anyone get any ideas? Just shout out if you have. Good one. Loyalty. Yeah. And love. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. She put, I think she put her faith in Naomi. I think she saw a little bit of godliness or something in Naomi's character and she decided it was better to be a daughter to this woman than to go back to her own people. 
and she had love and a compassion and a loyalty for her that expressed itself in dedicating her whole life to Naomi, Naomi's people, Naomi's home, Naomi's resting place, Naomi's God. I believe Ruth saw something of the goodness of God in Naomi, and I believe that God saw something of the goodness of something of goodness in Ruth because of her loyalty to Naomi. And maybe that's the reason that Ruth is included in the ancestry of David and Jesus. And by this, she becomes a part of God's future plan of salvation. And let me explain. I'm just going to go a little bit to one side. When Israel was becoming a nation, God used his commands and principles to put boundaries and safeguards in place. They were there to help the people not to be corrupt and to make it easy for them to obey him and be faithful to him and to each other. But Ruth did that all by herself. She didn't know the shoulds and ifs and oughts of Jewish law, but she behaved like like one of God's people without needing those commands. God saw something of faithfulness in her that he loved and treasured, even though her parentage and nationality was lawfully against her. And this is an important thing about God that I want us to pick up. Faith and obedience is God's language. And Ruth was learning to speak that language by making a commitment to Naomi's people and Naomi's God. When God sees faith or obedience in a person, he is perfectly entitled to bring that person into his blessing, regardless of whether they've ticked all the legal boxes. It's why Jesus welcomed a sinful woman who anointed him with perfume. It's why he healed a Roman centurion servant. It's why he spoke to a disreputable woman at a well. And it's why he delivered a Gentile man who was tormented by a fistful of demons. None of those people were clean or acceptable in Jewish law. But there was something in them that God counted as much more valuable, and Jesus knew it. And God saw that same something in Ruth. In short, guys, in God's eyes, faith trumps religious correctness. And I absolutely love that. So that's my theory (laughs) about Ruth. Now I want to go back to Naomi. So what do you think Naomi's faith meter reading was at this point? I mean, it's clear, isn't it, that she was bitterly disappointed at the way things had gone in her life. She was hopeless. She was helpless. But she has heard, through the grapevine, that God has come to help his people because the famine is over. So some spark of hope must have ignited in her. Some trust in the stories of old, which express the faithfulness, compassion, and love of God. So how does Naomi demonstrate faith in action at this point in the story? Does she? Does she even demonstrate faith? I think she does. I think that perhaps Naomi was on her last coin of faith. She'd spent everything else in the expectation of a good life. And if that kind of life wasn't to be in Bethlehem, perhaps God would be good to her in Moab. But I think by now she was down to the last penny in the jar. Perhaps she recognises that the end of the famine is down to the goodness of God. Maybe that's what she spends her last coin of faith on. He may not have been good to me, but he's good to my people. And what am I doing staying in Moab in this godless place? What am I waiting for? So she makes a decision to go back to what she knows, to the people and culture which has the faithfulness of God at its core, in its laws, in its provision for social justice, in its everyday living, 
to the place where she knows that God's name is upheld, to the place where she knew the blessing and provision of God in her youth, to the place where the way of life is familiar and safe because of God, to the people she knows who are marked by God, who maybe have stories to tell of God's provision and mercy in all the years that she's been away, who can maybe help her regain the joyful faith she once had. So maybe this is Naomi's faith in action. She has a tiny bit left. She chooses to go back to a place where she knows she will encounter the goodness of God. But she still has something that she needs to get out of her system. So here's how the story continues. So the two of them continued on their journey. When they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their arrival. Is it really Naomi? The women asked. Don't call me Naomi, she responded. Instead, call me Mara, for the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? So in case you need it, a little bit of explanation. Naomi means pleasant. And in Jewish culture, what you named your children was really significant. It was more than just a way of getting the child's attention or distinguishing between all your kids, you know. It was more than that. It was done almost like a prophetic declaration over their life. It really meant something. It was part of their culture. So Naomi means pleasant and Mara means bitter. And what Naomi is saying is that her life did not turn out in the way she was promised. I was promised pleasantness. My life should have been characterised by my name. But pleasantness has become bitterness, so I'm renouncing my name. She doesn't want to be reminded of what was in her past. She doesn't want to put her trust in what might happen in the future, only on what her experience is, is now. Uh, and Na Naomi goes a step further, and I think this is a little bit shocking, but anyway. When she makes this declaration, she uses one of the many names for God which is translated El Shaddai, and in English we've, it's been translated Almighty. Now, the meaning of El Shaddai, according to Hebrew scholars, contains an idea that God is completely sufficient, that he's more than enough, that he's, that he's all, you know, he's mighty, he's all. And she, deli I, well, I don't know, but she deliberately chooses to use this name for God to demonstrate that in fact... God, who is supposed to be more than enough, has emptied her, and now she's lacking. What she's saying is, God, you have not lived up to your name. The promise of your name is worth nothing, because I have gone from being fruitful and overflowing to devastated and empty. And here's where we need to put our glasses back on and look through the lens of the presence and the person of God. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do that. Oh, yeah, there you go. Um, to look through the lens, like the number one bit, the presence and the person of God versus what happens to us in our lives. Because at this point in the story, Naomi has been measuring the goodness and faithfulness of God and the success of her life only by what he's done for her or to her. His acts, not his nature, not his presence, not what she already knows of him. She did it on what was visible in her life, not on God's reputation. She attributes everything that has taken place to the will of God. She elevates the consequences of those things that have happened to her above the character of God. 
And because she believes that he's let her down and not lived up to his name, she publicly dishonors him. She challenges him out loud. That was harsh. And also very brave, because in Hebrew law, if you publicly dishonor God's name, you're put to death. But here is where we, as the readers of the story, maybe get a glimpse of the true nature of God. God Almighty, who has every right to put her to death, does no such thing. And in that way, maybe he accepts her challenge. Maybe he's even looking forward to proving himself to her, because he has faith in his name. He describes his name and what he stands for to Moses, if you know the story in Exodus 34. And depending on your translation, it goes a bit like this. This is the name of God, okay? Faithful, compassionate, gracious, loving, kind, forgiving, full of mercy and justice and the right kind of anger when it comes to sin. That's his name. And remember that to the Israelites, names are important. They represent your character. Now, Naomi would have probably learnt that, what we know as Exodus 34 um, passage, as a child, word for word in Hebrew. But she had the wrong glasses on when she looked at her own life. So she was only able to assess God's goodness by using her own life. And she was unable to stand on the faithfulness of God's name for the future. That's why she was bitter and angry. So, I'm going to summarise the rest of the story now. Hopefully you know what happens. Ruth, um, they go back to Bethlehem, and Ruth and Naomi live together, uh, and one day, uh, it's, it's harvest time, I think that's the time when they arrive, and Ruth um, uh, goes to a field and gathers some leftover barley, um, which during the weeks of harvest, to feed herself and Naomi, and that was the custom in Israel, it was like an enshrined thing in Jewish law to ensure that the poor were looked after by the rich. And uh, it just so happens that the field that she gathers from is a guy called Boaz, who happens to be a relative. And he's very kind to Ruth as soon as he meets her and ensures she's looked after, uh, not just on the first day, but for the rest of the time that the barley um, uh, is being harvested. And when Naomi hears Ruth's account of the first day and how kind Boaz has been, maybe she gets a little bit of hope and a bit of faith then and begins to trust in the goodness of God. Eventually, she comes up with a plan for Ruth to marry Boaz using the Jewish law of redemption, which we don't need to go into now. Um, and Ruth and Boaz have a son who ends up being the grandfather of King David, and Naomi is very happy. Okay, so I've summarised the story quite a lot there. Um, but, but do read it, it's lovely. Um, in finishing, I want to say this. that of all the people in this story, actually Boaz is the guy who shows consistently faithful behaviour towards everyone. And I don't have time to delve into it, but I want to just summarise it in a nutshell because it's important. He did good for the sake of God and he kept on doing good because he was obedient to God. He had a long-standing reputation of doing the right thing for his own people and for foreigners. He recognised a richness in his life and he used it to be generous to others. And I'm not just talking about money here. Boaz has heard about Ruth's loyalty to Naomi and it fixes her in his attention. He recognises something godly in her. And she's also young and very attractive probably, so I'm sure that helps. <laughs> but I don't think marriage was in his mind to begin with. Like He was probably quite a lot older than her. Um, he probably didn't even think about that. He had no motive for being kind to her other than his own faithfulness in God. And listen to what he says to Ruth when he first meets her. I'm just going to have to jump, sorry. 
when he first meets her, introduces himself to her, he says, I've heard, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. He's much more concerned for Naomi that she knows how faithful his God is and that she's done the right thing by Naomi. And and he virtually prophesied her, doesn't he? Like the goodness of God, he virtually does that. Now that is a man with the right glasses on. Someone who recognises something of God in a person and who understands and believes in the name of God and everything he stands for. He did good, he went above and beyond doing good, and he did not tire of doing good. That is definitely faith in action. Obedience to God, born out of love and dedication to him, and generosity to others, born out of compassion and kindness for them. I think it's almost impossible to be hard-hearted when you are close to God. So... What about us? Well, just as an aside, really, I actually think those reading glasses that we talked about earlier on um, are actually a very good way for us to anchor our own faith, to nurture it and make it resilient. Do do, do you know what I mean? (laughs) Like if we turn the question around, the two questions around, and kind of apply them to us, um, if we live in such a way that the presence of God is far more valuable than what he does for us, and if we are able to look for the characteristics of God in others, I think with those two things together, that, that is a really good way to, to anchor us. Um, and living in such a way that the presence of God is, is more valuable than anything else, I don't think that's natural for us, for most of us anyway. But it can become natural if we're prepared to put in a little bit of time to it. Um, and it, is, it stabilises us. It, we're not kind of, you know, like that because this is happening and that's happening and we don't know what's going on. It stabilises us. God, who you are, your presence is much more important to me than anything else. And I'd love to talk about Moses here, but I don't have time. But, you know, if you've got time to, like, uh, read and spend some time, you will see a man who went from... The act, like looking at the acts of God, and there were plenty of them, to valuing God's presence so much that he didn't care if he never got to see the promised land. It's a powerful story. Um, and it doesn't mean, by the way, that God's actions don't have any worth or significance, okay? It just means that we interpret what he does based on what we know of his character. And we make sure, they li- make sure it lines up. Um, And looking for the characteristics of God in others, quite apart from the joy of seeing that in someone, it might be that you need to hang around those people for a while because they have learned something that will help you grow in your faith. And it doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. Okay, And you can do that with real people. Um, You can do it with characters from the Bible, like Moses, Um, or Christian teaching that you read or follow online. And by the way, if you are going to follow anyone online or otherwise, make sure that their life reflects their teaching, okay? And uh, that's all I want to say about that. So anyway. Okay, but apart from this, um, I'd like to just take a few minutes to reflect on, you know, what we've done this morning. Um, And I've got a couple of pointers 
to do with what we've talked about in Ruth, but don't be restricted by that. If the Holy Spirit's saying anything else to you, then just go with that. So we're just going to have a few minutes of quiet. Um, I think I've got a slide. Yeah, sorry, it's a bit small. Um, just some things to consider, okay? Do you need to walk alongside someone for a season to help you grow in your faith? We talked about that a little bit. Or you might need to be that person for someone. Do you need to throw out an honest challenge to God because you're struggling to see his goodness? It's okay to do this, okay? God can cope with your honesty. If you're open and willing, God will meet you right where you're at. Are you on your last coins of faith? If so, spend them wisely in a place where God's name is upheld. Don't throw them away. Don't bury them. Faith is valuable no matter how small it is. If you honour God, he'll honour you. And lastly, do you need to find or increase care and compassion for others out of the richness of your life in God? And as I said before, I don't just mean financial riches here. I'm including things like expertise or ability, serving, your time, prayer, etc. It's called doing good. <laughs> and I think it's a bit undervalued, actually. <laughs> um, but God values it highly. So um, I'm just going to give us a few minutes and to think about that. Um, feel free to just yeah, do whatever. Okay, I'll leave those up there. Um, if you do want someone to like, pray with you or whatever, or if you need prayer for anything at all, actually, um, please find someone you trust or you can come to the front. Um, and if you're actually not familiar with much of this, but somehow you've caught a glimpse of God this morning, like in the way that Ruth did, um, and if you need to find out more, then please also speak to, to someone. Um, Thanks very much.